Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is April 26, 2016, and this is broad... Well, yeah, never mind. I don't say the broadcast numbers anymore because they all get out of order anyway. So it just saves me a lot of grief in the future. But anyway, anyway. <laughs> speaking of grief, if you're trying to call the seminary um, and you're listening live and you have tried to call the seminary, don't, because we're not getting phone calls for some strange reason and i know the tech guy is supposed to be taking care of these problems but he can't be two places at once so we'll solve that after the podcast but anyway that's all just fun and games really uh today we're gonna be talking with dr ben shaw he's the uh, professor of old testament here at greenville seminary and we're gonna be talking with him about the subject of bible translations in other words uh what's the best bible translation to use um as you read scripture so that's one of the questions that certainly we'll get into and other related types of things uh along the way so uh stay tuned for that uh, in just a minute uh just bring everybody up to speed just really simply uh as i say almost every single time uh, go to the website confessingourhope.com there you'll get um, all the information that is related to the podcast resources uh, past episodes um faith and practice questions, place to submit them, and um, other types of materials. So uh, avail yourself of that, GPTR, um, confessingourhope.com, the seminary website, gpts.edu. And of course, there's the GPTS mobile app. If you don't have it by now, then you're missing out. And um, we're about ready to release the 2016 Spring Theology Conference, and that'll be on the app as well. In addition, I just added both long and short um, versions of our promotional video that was just released uh, about a month or a month and a half ago. So um, avail yourself of those resources and, and take advantage of them. And if you want to write into the program, you can. It's confessingourhope at gpts.edu. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ben Shaw. This is a program we tried to do last month or whenever it was, and, and it was probably my fault, so we didn't do it. But now we're doing it, and um, almost this one almost didn't happen either. But anyway, it's happening. So, Dr. Shaw, it's good to have you on the program. Talk about this subject that uh, we hear from time to time. Uh, asked, you know, what what translation is the best one? So, thanks for coming in. All right. Well, I was reading something the other day that indicated that in the past forty years there have been twenty five full translations of the Bible into English and an additional 26 translations of, of the New Testament into English. So there's a wide variety of translations out there. But essentially, they will fall into one of two categories. Uh, either a what is sometimes referred to as a word-for-word translation. Technical term for that is formal equivalence or what is sometimes called a thought-for-thought translation. Used to be called, uh, the technical term for that used to be dynamic equivalence, but more recently the term functional equivalence has been preferred. And, Hmm. And in a certain sense, every translation is somewhere on a line between full formal equivalence and full functional uh, equivalents because there are uh, e- even the the most strictly literal version say for example the American Standard Version of 1901 is going to have places where it's simply not possible to translate literally uh, so for example in Ruth uh, f- chapter 4 
uh, Boaz is sitting in the city gate, and uh, the, the uh, uh, person comes by that Boaz needs to talk to. And in addressing him, Boaz uses a phrase that probably means uh, something like the English so-and-so. Uh, it, it's a way of, of avoiding the name of the person, but there's not so and so is only a rough equivalent. It's not a, it's not a, mm. uh, a, a, a word for word translation. Uh, and then on the other end, uh, you get uh, to full paraphrases such as the Living Bible and the um, uh, and the Message. Everything else uh, falls somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. Uh, the New American Standard is more uh, uh, formal equivalence. Uh, ESV, formal equivalence, but somewhat less than the New American Standard. New King James, somewhere around where the New American Standard is. Uh, New International Version, closer to, uh, well, it's more functional equivalence, but... Uh, I would say somewhere in the center of the spectrum. Uh, New Living Translation, um, not as far. Uh, a fully functional uh, uh, translation, you know, functional equivalent. So, for example, in uh, uh, Haggai chapter 1, uh, we're given a date, and I think it's something like this, such and such day of the fifth month. Well, in the New Living Translation, they simply say on August 29th uh, of that year. Now, uh, the the thing about that is I, I don't mind the information being there. My preference would be that it would be put in a footnote because the ancient Israelite reader or the ancient Jewish reader or the early Christian reader was not thinking in terms of August and September. They were thinking in terms of the fifth month, and, and the the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, and so there is variation as to precisely when a particular date is. But uh, but that would just be an illustration of uh, of a, a formal equivalence, whereas a functional equivalence would uh, uh, or of a functional equivalent, but a, fo- a formal equivalent would simply translate, you know, the such and such date of the fifth month. Uh, another uh, way that you see a difference in versions is uh, the more functional equivalence translations will tend to put uh, measurements in uh, feet and inches. Uh, so, for example, if you look at the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is essentially the Bible of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, instead of cubits, they will use feet and yards. Um, uh, and uh, a formal equivalence translation such as the New American Standard or the ESV is going to use cubits. Uh, so uh, those are some of the ways that you're going to see a, a difference uh, among translations. Now, for somebody who wants to delve a little deeper into the whole issue, there I've got a couple of books to recommend. Uh, one is by Leland Riken. That's R-Y-K-E-N. And it's titled Choosing a Bible. Now, you have to understand, 
Riken was involved with the translation of the ESV, and so he's going to be arguing for um, a formal equivalence uh, approach, what he calls essentially literal. Uh, and then on the other hand, uh, Gordon Fee and uh, I think David Strauss, but I forgot to note his first name, how to choose a translation for all it's worth. Now, Fee and Strauss both involved with the translation of the NIV, so they're going to be more in favor of a functional equivalence uh, approach to translation. But um, those would be uh, two books. uh, uh, There's probably easily uh, a dozen books evaluating Bible translations out there. When we're talking about um, Bible translations, obviously it it means that they're taking the original text and they're putting it in English, and and then that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about translations of Spanish and other countries. Uh, Let's back up even um, back to the the, the argument that you'll hear often, the majority text and, you know, Alexandrian text types, and, you know, what is the the issue there? And... um, and how does that uh, impact our, our, Amer- our translations in English today? All right. Uh, I'll come at that indirectly. Uh, the, the basic text that is the foundation for translations of the Old Testament is the, uh, is the Hebrew text that's referred to as the Masoretic text. It was developed in the Middle Ages uh, comparison with the Dead Sea Scrolls shows that there's very little difference between our current Masoretic text and the the text as it was in the time before Christ. Um, but at times the Hebrew of the Masoretic text is difficult. Uh, sometimes it's unclear. And so uh, translators will look at uh, different ancient versions, the Septuagint, the ancient uh, Greek translation, the uh, Vulgate, the uh, uh, Jerome's Latin translation, and other ancient versions, the Syriac and, and Aramaic Targums and that kind of thing, to help understand the Hebrew text. Now, um, uh, some versions will be more heavily reliant, uh, some English versions will be more heavily reliant on these ancient versions than others will. So, for example, uh, the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James, all tend to be pretty straightforward translations of the Masoretic text. They will only, on rare occasions, be influenced by the Septuagint or other ancient versions. The ESV, on the other hand, uh, being a revision of the old RSV, uh, which had a, a, a certain amount of influence from the Septuagint, you're going to see more Septuagint and ancient version influence in the ESV than you will in the New American Standard or the New King James. Uh, the NIV, the New Living Translation, functional equivalence translations tend to make broader uh, and more consistent use of the ancient versions, uh, still working out of the basic Hebrew text, but tending to look to the versions for a lot of help. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, things get a lot more complicated <laughs> because the uh, the New Testament there are essentially um, well, I, I'll say three, but effectively two. There are essentially three different texts 
three different Greek texts that are form the basis for modern English versions. The King James Version uh, in New Testament was based on what has come to be called the Textus Receptus, or the received text, um, which essentially developed out of the Greek text edited by Erasmus in the uh, 15, uh, 15, mid 15 teens. Uh, in the and and that's also the text that provides the basis for the New King James, but in the 19th century. Uh, 19th century was the age of discovery when it comes to biblical texts, and there were a lot of Greek manuscripts that were discovered in the 19th century. And two in particular, uh, well, one of them was known earlier, the uh, uh, Codex Vaticanus was known earlier, but uh, uh, its importance was increased with the discovery of what's now called Codex uh, Sinaiticus. Uh, these are both 4th century uh, Greek texts. They are complete texts of the New Testament. Many manuscripts are not complete texts of the New Testament. They'll be a book or part of a book, but not the whole uh, New Testament. And the influence of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus is such that there are a lot of differences between their uh, reading and that of the Textus Receptus. And then there's a third category of text, which is generally referred to as the majority text. That is, when you look at all of the uh, Greek manuscripts put together, what do the majority read? And so far, there has been no English version that has used the majority text as the basis for its translation. So that what you have is the Textus Receptus, which serves as the basis for the King James and the New King James, and then the so-called critical or eclectic text, uh, which serves as the basis for everything else, New American Standard, ESV, NIV, New Living Translation, and any of a dozen others uh, out there. The, uh, uh, the chief difference uh, between the Textus Receptus and the critical or, uh, or eclectic text is that the Textus Receptus and the majority text, frankly, tend to be longer. Um, uh, text critics, for some reason, uh, for a number of reasons, tend to prefer the shorter reading. They, they tend to think that the shorter reading is longer, that the habit of scribes was to expand rather than to contract. And so in, in the view of probably the majority of text critics, a shorter text is to be preferred. So there's a tendency, uh, and so... Uh, you'll you'll occasionally see uh, uh, some of your King James only friends or some of your King James preference friends post something about how this verse is missing in the NIV or this uh, these words are not in uh, some other uh, translation, and that's because they're operating out of a different text, um, and arguments can be made on on either side. But that's you know, as I as I say the. New American Standard, ESV, NIV, NLT, they're all, they're all using the, uh, the standard uh, critical eclectic text as the basis for their translation. King James and New King James uh, are using the Textus Receptus. Now, <clears throat> curious, uh, why has no translation been done based on the majority text? Uh, I think in part because a 
an argument in favor of the majority text is a relatively recent development, uh, late latter part of the 20th century. Um, and, um, you know, then I, I, aside from that, I, I'm not sure why, hmm. you know, why there hasn't been. Um, I, I suppose it, it's uh, that the majority text folks don't have enough influence to, uh, right. con- to convince some publisher uh, to go ahead and do a majority text translation. Yep. Now, the Syniac... Uh, uh, Sinaiticus? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank. Well, yeah. Uh, and, and the other one, uh, Vaticanus, I can say that one. Um, that's the basis for the eclectic text translation. So Fundamentally, NASB, yes. ESV. The, yeah. Those, so those are, are the two earliest complete texts of the New Testament that we have. Um, obviously, there were earlier... Uh, text, but we don't have those, and they're certainly not uh, complete. We do have some earlier texts, uh, but they're not complete. Now, some would say that's an argument for using those translations, therefore, because they get closest to the original source, because they're, what, 4th century? Yeah, 4th century. Is that a valid argument? (sighs) Well, yes and no. Um, you know, you can have let let's say you you have the original text, the original manuscript written by say Paul or by Peter. He writes it out. It gets distributed. Well, the way it gets distributed is people copy it. Mm-hmm. Now, some scribes are very careful in their copying. Other scribes are not very careful, and so. Let's say you've got scribe A who's a very careful scribe and you've got scribe B who isn't so careful. Let's say that scribe B, because he's not quite so careful, is a lot faster at producing copies than scribe A. And so his copies are going to be perhaps more widely uh, and more more readily available than those of scribe A. And uh, his copies are then going to be copied by others. Scribe A's copies, of course, will be copied by others, but maybe not so many. And so the uh, anytime, and I, I would simply encourage uh, people to try this as an experiment, take a book of the New Testament and try to copy it out by hand without making any mistakes. Uh, you'll find pretty quickly that it's a very difficult challenge. Um, but the uh, as a um, but, but let's say um, going back to scribes A and B, you have a, a fourth century copy from scribe that that is of the family or of the descent of scribe B. And then let's say you've got a sixth century text, that is descended from scribe A. Well, scribe the the fourth century text is going to be earlier, but because it's based on not as good a foundation, it's not going to be as as uh, it's not going to be preferable to the sixth century that traces back to scribe A. So uh, that's a, a very simplistic mm-hmm. uh, way of talking about it, but uh, generally. Uh, older is to be preferred unless there are other, con- you know, there, but there are always other considerations that come into play. And, and 
and obviously, and, and as many listeners probably are aware, there are certain, like in the ESV, the New American Standard, um, as an example, um, there are certain passages, um, like the woman caught in adultery, the long ending of Mark, mm-hmm. um, that they'll include, but then they'll footnote or have some brackets around it or some way of highlighting it that says these are not in the most reliable manuscripts. Does that mean fourth century going all the way back as far as possible and looking at that and saying, ah, these aren't here? Um, yes, yes, and no. Um, <laughs> Dr. Shaw loves that. You know, we ask him, we ask him questions like this in class too, and and this is what we usually get: uh, yes and no. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, but that's that's okay. The um, yeah, the, so for example, working with the long ending of Mark, you'd look at Vaticanus, you look at Sinaiticus. For in both of those manuscripts, the Gospel of Mark ends at Mark sixteen eight. Uh, neither one of them uh, has uh, anything of Mark beyond uh, chapter 16, verse 8. But one of them has a column and a half blank. Uh, it's not very unusual in manuscripts to have that much space left blank. Hmm. Uh, and the other one has uh, sort of, uh, if you will, decorative uh, um Material after the end of Mark sixteen eight, some people have argued that, that seems to indicate that that both of those manuscripts seem to indicate that they were aware of uh, more to the Book of Mark, but they didn't. The, the copy that they were copying from didn't have it. Um, the certainly the majority of Greek texts has Mark sixteen nine to twenty as part of the text of Mark. Uh, but um, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and a handful, uh, no more than a dozen uh, texts in total, do not have uh, Mark sixteen nine to twenty. Um, the uh, uh, and then with the uh, woman caught in adultery from John eight uh, seven fifty three to eight eleven, uh, that one's a little more difficult because uh, in some manuscripts it's not not only not found it's not found in john but is found in luke hmm. um and so uh, th- those two are by far the most difficult uh issues majority view in both cases uh, certainly uh, e- even among evangelical scholars is that neither of those is original um but the strong minority view is that they both are original and belong where they are, um, but you will see, uh, as uh, uh, Mr. Hill has said, you will see if you look in your in your English Bible at um, John or Mark uh, sixteen, there will be a note. Uh, some in some versions the note's more extensive, in other versions it's shorter, uh, but just a note saying that uh, the you know this text isn't found in, and and then the language gets very <laughs> biased. Uh, yeah, because it will say not found reliable. in the most reliable manuscripts, <laughs> yeah. or not found in in the earliest uh, manuscripts, and, and that kind of thing. And that and that is, and it's for that reason that that at a certain level I prefer the New King James because the New King James what is the basis of the text, the body text of the New King James, is the Textus Receptus. And where the, where the majority text 
or the critical text differs, they will note that by simply indicating the majority text reads here X or the uh, critical text reads here X. And that, to my mind, is a more objective uh, evaluation than simply saying the, the earliest or the most reliable. Because when they say the earliest, people tend to think, oh, this is really, really old. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it's two to three centuries removed from uh, the original uh, manuscripts. And, uh, uh, and the most reliable, well, most reliable in whose judgment. So th- those are kind of uh, – uh, I, I find those, th- those kinds of terms not particularly helpful in the debate. Right. When the Westminster, this is kind of an aside, uh, but it's there's a there's background to it, but I won't get into it. But um, when the Westminster Assembly convened and Confession of Faith, its larger, shorter catechisms were drafted, what what were they using? Uh, they were using probably uh, both the well, they they were using the uh, the Greek and Hebrew, but as, as far as English versions go, they were probably using. Uh, both the Geneva and the King James. Uh, I mean, by by the 1640s, the King James had become pretty much, I think, the standard uh, English uh, English version. But there were still, particularly among the Puritan party, a number of people using the Geneva Bible. Yep. Now, since you raised the issue of the King James version, I you were probably raised on it. I I certainly was. Um, I was raised on a King James Version, New Schofield Bible, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I've heard arguments made that that really isn't the King James, and I've listened to guys like Peter Ruckman, who just passed away, I think I heard um, recently, but uh, I've heard his lectures, you know, KJV only arguments and all What? okay, I, without getting into all that. Yeah. Um, is the King James Version uh, particularly helpful in today's culture, where we are now? I mean, not even arguing necessarily... The question of is it a reliable translation? I think we've all accept that, but is it particularly helpful for the average reader of the Bible at this point? In your opinion, of course. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'll put it this way: the um, the King James. If if you look at a book of quotations, say for example, the Oxford Book of Quotations, you're going to find several pages. Hmm. of quotes, of lines from the uh, King James Version that, you know, they stick in people's heads. Uh, and so uh, they, um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, uh, I think it's in Acts 17, maybe for Acts 19, where uh, the opponents of Paul are trying to pull together some uh, people to stir up some trouble for Paul. Uh, and in the um, King James, the way it translates the, 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 the phrase that identifies these people, it says, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Now that to what? me is, that, that to me is a phrase that sticks in the mind. And, um, the uh, uh, and and the King James is full of those kinds of phrases. To the to the extent, well, my reading 
of of the modern versions and i've read the esv i've read the rsv i i, I actually grew up on the rsv i was raised ah in see misspoke um but uh well but uh, the esv new american standard holman christian standard bible the contemporary english version perhaps less so the new american standard or the esv but but the the one problem uh to my mind with most of the modern versions is that they suffer from a case of terminal blandness mm-hmm. um they seem to be so afraid of using language that might offend uh, that there's nothing distinctive about them. You're not going to be, to the extent that they have any memorable phrases in them, they inherited them from the King James. Um, there are, you know, you're a, a century from now, you're not going to find lines from the NIV or the New American Standard showing up in, in books of quotations because they just aren't, to my mind, that memorable. And now, in reading the King James, you have to recognize that there are some words that have completely changed meanings. Other words are obsolete um, and no longer used. Uh, so I, I actually just finished reading through the King James a couple of weeks ago, um, actually last week. And um, you know they use the, the verb to fine in a couple of places. Well, we don't you we you know we use the the word fine as he levied a fine on or so and so got a speeding ticket he was fined so many so much dollars uh, but they were using it in its older sense uh which means we use the word refine mm-hmm. so that um and and so you know but nobody uses the word fine it's sort of like overwhelming nobody uses the word whelming although Whelming originally had the meaning of over uh, of what overwhelming does today, so you have to be aware of those kinds of things. You have to be you have to be willing to open up a dictionary and look for obsolete uh, or obscure meanings uh, of of term of uh, terms. But but one thing I do think that the King James does very well. Uh, you see it to a, a certain extent also in the New American Standard and the New King James is that it provides the reader a way of reading the original. Uh, uh, somebody, an article that I read once that was pointing to the end of Isaiah chapter 3 where you get this rebuke of the women of Israel and it lists all of these, all of their finery. And uh, the... Um, uh, the 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 guy writing the article is making the point that if you compare the King James with the say the New English Bible, the the translation of the various items is probably more accurate in the New English Bible than in the King James. But what the New English Bible has done is it's turned it into sim, into nothing more than a list. Whereas in the King James, because it's following the style of the Hebrew, it retains its, its effectiveness as a prophetic condemnation. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, my, 
my preference in a Bible translation is a, a translation that provides the careful reader a way of of seeing through to the original Hebrew and to the original Greek. Um, and so my preference is for a formal equivalence translation. The uh, And that's what, part of the reason that I don't prefer uh, functional equivalence translation because you don't see uh, as clearly and often not at all uh, uh, back to the original. Mm. Well, you kind of stole my thunder. That was one of my last questions. <laughs> Which one do you prefer? And it, it, I mean, if you're at the seminary um, and go to chapel every every uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, it's well, for me anyway, it's always a mystery as to which Bible Dr. Shaw is going to bring to chapel. You never know. <laughs> sometimes it's the ESV. Sometimes it's the Holman. I've seen him with the Holman, what's it, Holman Christian Standard, Christian Bible. Standard Bible. I've seen him with his Hebrew uh, or his Greek. Um, I, I, I think I've seen him with just about every translation that he has in his office at one time or another, probably yeah. because he's reading it currently, as he just yeah. mentioned, the, reading through the King James. So, um, so it's always kind of a you know, which one will he bring this day yeah. uh, kind of thing. So which one are you bringing to chapel today? Um, <laughs> I might bring the Revised English Bible. That's a revision. The see? New English Bible. Um, <laughs> the what? <laughs> the New English Bible. Yeah, see, this is one that's faded into oblivion. Uh, the, the New English Bible was a translation that was done by uh, a, a group of um, translators at, uh, brought together by several of the churches in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, the Church of Scotland, the Church of England, uh, I think three or four other denominations in the United Kingdom to uh, provide a trans, a fresh new translation uh, that was not dependent, if you will, on the King James tradition. Hmm. Uh, and so it's deliberately not King James-ish in its, uh, in its approach. I think the original... Uh, New Testament of it came out in 1961. The full Bible came out in uh, 1968. Uh, and then the entire thing was revised in 1989. Um, and uh, uh, But that's uh, – I've been reading through the New English Bible uh, starting last week. Uh, and uh, I, you know, there, there's, there, there are some interesting um, – Interesting translations that you don't see elsewhere, but uh, um, so see you're going to pick that stuff up too because you have a working knowledge of both Greek and Hebrew, and right. so you're going to those are going to jump you know leap leap right off the page probably for you. Mm -hmm. But for most of our listeners, they they probably are not um, uh, probably don't even have a basic grasp of Greek or mm -hmm. Hebrew, and um, you've already mentioned that you would prefer they use a more formal equivalent like an ESV or New American mm -hmm. Standard translation. But um, when dealing with various people, depending, like, you know, if I was just reading the Bible for content, mm -hmm. I wasn't doing a serious study. I was just reading for knowledge, information, you know, right. the chronology, the events, and who the players, the names, the dates, that kind of thing. Does it really make that big a difference if I'm just doing that? Like, if I were the NIV, wouldn't I get a general grasp of those things? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you read the if you read the New Living Translation, you get a general grasp of those things. Yep. Um, uh, and so, uh, in in that sense, you know, um, 
people ask me what, what, what version I recommend, and I, I basically tell them that um, the ESV, the New American Standard, the New King James, uh, and to a certain extent the King James, um, you know, granted the, the old language, but at least the other three, New American Standard, New King James, and ESV, except for the issue of the New Testament text, to my mind, there's not a great deal of difference among those three. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, now the NIV, yeah, it's it, it's it's because it's more uh, leans more toward the functional equivalent side, and I want to want to throw this in too. Uh, most of the English versions, aside from the New American Standard update. And the of course New King James and the ESV, most of the more recent translations have gone to gender neutral language, uh, and I mean I understand why they do that because that is standard English style uh, in this in this day and age. Give an illustration of what you mean by gender neutral. Okay, uh, the avoidance of you know in. When I was growing up, back in the dark ages, um, you know, when you referred to a generic individual, you would you say he. Mm-hmm. The, third, the third masculine singular pronoun just used generically. And, and it, you might, um, you know, uh, you have an applicant for a job. He applied for the job. Doesn't imply anything about the sex of the person. Might have been male, might have been female, but he was the generic. But um, in the last 20 years, 25 years, people have gotten a lot more sensitive about that, so they will say he or she, or they'll turn it into a plural, they. Uh, and so in in the NIV 2011 edition, the New Living Translation, the Revised English Bible, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, the contemporary English version, the common English Bible, those are all very sensitive to avoiding any kind of gender-specific language, avoiding the, gen- the generic use of the uh, uh, third masculine singular pronoun so that you won't find he or his unless it's referring to a specific male person. Uh, and the, the, the problem that I have with that is that, to my mind, it misrepresents the Bible. Uh, The Bible is not sensitive to our cultural preferences. And as a matter of fact, often the Bible stands in judgment against our cultural preferences. And if and and I, I think, you know, we've seen all of the debate about transgender bathrooms and that kind of thing popping up in the news lately. It strikes me, and some people will, will take offense at this, but it strikes me that a gender-neutral approach to translating the Bible feeds into that whole mindset. Um, so... Uh, you know, as I say, I understand why the translations do it because that's now standard English usage. But it, to my mind, it inhibits the ability of the scriptures to speak against some of the problems that there are in our current cultural situation. 
Yep. And, and now we have translations, and correct me if I'm wrong, but are trying to even feminize the name of God. Uh, and, and, you know, as. Yeah, I don't know that there are any translations that do that. I think there are uh, some. Um, lectionaries that some of the mainline churches use that do that mm. uh, but I, I'm not aware of any translations that do it mm. well that's another subject for another day but it's needless to say it's pretty heinous to go that route entirely but um, so if, if you were to the average Christian you, you've already mentioned formal equivalents but what about a, a person who's saying you know I'm, I'm going to do some intensive Bible study. But I don't know Greek and Hebrew, mm-hmm. and, and I really don't care to learn that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the time, I have family, all that business. And so, but I really want to, I don't want to just read the Bible to read the Bible. I want to dig in. Mm-hmm. Um, what would, how would you recommend, in the, in the sphere of translations, of course, uh, recommend they approach that? Um, any of those three, New American Standard, ESV, or New King James? I know here you, uh, in, in our... Um, Hermeneutics class and, and, and other classes, you know, we hear it all the time. Um, you know, compare your translations. You know, mm-hmm. look at if you're preaching from the ESV, don't just bank everything on the ESV. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look at the New King James. Look at the King James. Look at the NIV even. And why did they translate this so, you know, so, a little bit differently and try to get to the behind that? And do you recommend that as well for, you know, yeah. the average Bible student? Uh, um, yeah. I mean, you know, the, of course, the, uh, the average Bible student who doesn't have the Greek and Hebrew is a, is a little bit of a disadvantage because sometimes a difference that – let's say you're comparing the New American Standard and the NIV. Sometimes a difference between the two is just a difference between one committee saying, well, I think – the Hebrew is best represented by this English word, mm-hmm. and the other translation committee saying, well, I think the Hebrew is best represented by this uh, particular word. So, for example, if you look at Psalm 3, uh, the word uh, in King James, it's uh, salvation, and you get the last line of the verse, salvation is of the Lord. And the that word... Um, uh, from which we get Joshua, uh, uh, Yashak is the Hebrew verb, occurs three or four times in the verse. And um, so there's a debate. Should we translate it save and salvation, which clearly has some theological overtones to it, or should we translate it deliver and deliverance, which kind of minimizes Mm -hmm. the theological overtones but is still... Accurate, and what you're going to see in, in is, um, I think the New King James uses save and salvation. Uh, the NIV uses deliver and deliverance, and it's uh, and and that's a translator's choice. Sometimes the difference can reflect a difference in the basic text. In other words, um, let's say New American Standard uh, uh, translates. A, a passage one way, NIV translates it another way, and that's because the NIV uh, has followed, say, the Septuagint uh, there, or they have followed a different reading in the New Testament text. Uh, and and the 
the reader who doesn't have Greek and Hebrew is not going to know the difference between that first type of difference that I that I noted and the second type, the difference in, in just translation, or is this a difference in text? Um, and I, I will say this, though, that if you're comparing, say, that, again, the New American Standard and the New King James, or, or the New American Standard and the NIV, what you will often find, particularly in Paul's letters, is that the NIV will rearrange the order of clauses. Mm-hmm. In uh, Paul tended to write long sentences. Um, technically speaking, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence in Greek. And it's a it's a, it's a nightmare assignment to tell students outline yeah, or, out, or, or diagram, diagram, <laughs> diagram the sentence. Um, you know the the yeah. uh, ESV. I think the King James turned it into three sentences. The ESV, I think, into five, and the NIV into I think ten uh, sentences. Uh, but in some cases, they rearrange the order of some clauses. And so if you're comparing, as I say, the New American Standard and the NIV, and you see a, a difference in the order of clauses, you can be pretty confident that the the NIV has has rearranged the order of the Greek for what, in, in the view of the translation committee, is greater readability. Mm-hmm. Well, the million-dollar question. You're stuck on a desert island all by yourself. You can't bring your Greek and Hebrew. Um, which version do you grab? Me? I'm probably going to grab the King James. There you go. That's it. That settles the argument. Now that's he's grabbing the King James. Everybody should be reading the King James. No, he's not. Obviously, not saying that. That's what he prefers. And I think um, you know the lesson here as we wrap things up is, you know, what is the most preferred translation? Well, you've heard the expression. It's the one you're reading. Um, I think yeah, Dr. I, Shaw would agree with this, that you know our English translations are pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, I would say somebody asked me which translation uh, should I use, and my answer would be the one you will read. Yep. Um, you know, for, for folks for whom English is a second language, uh, you know, the King James is obviously going to be that's a difficult great, great new american point. standard is going to be difficult new yeah. king james is going to be difficult um and so in that context for for somebody for whom english is a second language i don't have any problem uh recommending say the niv or even the new living translation um because those they are in some in simpler uh, in, in simpler English, in, in other, you know, if you go, if you Google uh, translation uh, reading levels, uh, you'll come up with a couple of lists that that, oh, that uh, shows the reading level of various English versions. And um, King James is technically twelfth grade uh, reading level, although I'm not, I'm, I think it's college level anymore. Uh, but you know the New Living Translation, I think, is is third or fourth grade reading level. Uh, ES, uh, NIV uh, sixth or seventh grade reading level. So uh, you know, uh, read read the Bible you're going to read. Uh, you know, if you, if you pick up the say the New American Standard and you find it just unreadable, well, put it down and get something else. Um, yep. And and so, but I I would also say that um, 
the more familiar you are with the Bible, in other words, the more you read it, what you're going to find is that reading it's going reading it is going to get easier. Yep. Yeah, it, it it's great great advice and um and it is a subject that, you know, often gets discussed and uh, you know, sometimes debated, mm. you know, why do you use the ESV and not the New King James and so forth and so on. I mean, I I can only speak for myself when I'm working on sermons and that's the world I'm in. Um, you know, I'm looking at those. I'm looking at all, I mean, I line them up mm. in my in my one note, you know, I put the ESV, which is my preferred weapon of choice in the pulpit, and then I have the New King James in the middle column, and I have the New American Standard on the far right. I want to see the comparison, and why did the translators do a little bit different thing here? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's not that significant, but sometimes there is, and so I want to dig into that a little bit. But um, but for the average person, uh, the more you read, the more you understand it, mm-hmm. the better, uh, more familiar you are with uh, the text. And, and, you know, I'm not a big fan of, like, the New Living Translation. Is it the New Living? Yeah. It's a very paraphrased, paraphrastic mm-hmm. yeah. uh, approach. I mean, if you're going to read that, great, but read something else that's more, that's at least getting closer to the original. At least that would be my suggestion mm-hmm. if I had someone in front of me. I wouldn't just stick with the New Living Translation because you're going to get maybe, I don't want to say warped, but a, a little bit askew at times. Well, and it's going to be... Um, Part of the part of the problem with the simpler language versions is that they're, you know, I, I, as I tell my beginning Hebrew students, um, when you get done with beginning Hebrew, you're going to be reading Hebrew at a first or second grade level. I remember hearing that, and I was very discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I uh, and 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 the problem is that the. Bible wasn't written in first grade Hebrew. Yeah, uh, right. The New Testament wasn't written in first grade Greek, and so, uh, and so the Bible will use technical theological terms that convey a certain idea, mm-hmm. and the, the 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 simple language translations, such as the New Living Translation or the Common English Bible, tend to minimize. If, if not avoid entirely technical theological terminology. And that limits then, I think, the reader's understanding. So, you know, uh, sanctification, well, that's a big word. Um, uh, salvation, justification. Uh, my own sense is that the reader, if he really wants to understand the Bible, needs to read it enough so that he gains some familiarity with these various technical theological terms and and you know buy yourself a little theological dictionary yep. and look up these words so uh, learn a little bit yep. um so uh and the um uh, i think it's the uh, uh reformation uh study bible that ligonier uh publishes I, they've got a number of brief uh theological um, you know that I, I think originally they were written by J.I. Packer. Uh, these you know discussions of theological terms. So there's one on justification, and there's one on sanctification, and there's one on faith, and and that kind of thing. And those are very helpful little essays. Yeah. You know, we could even get into the discussion about the help, the, the usefulness of study Bibles and not study Bibles. Again, I think it's, it it depends on what your goal is. Um, you know, I use study Bibles, but you know, some people, they 
they, they think that it unjustly or, or influences their understanding and instead of thinking through it themselves, fine. I mean, I don't have any argument with that, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we lean on people who have gone before us on things, and, yeah, I and mean, it's helpful. The, uh, uh, in, in a certain stance, the, the study Bible has um, become sort of a mini-library. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you look... If you look at the even this the old Schofield Bible, he's got notes, but he's not got extensive notes. You look at the ESV Study Bible or the Reformation Study Bible; yeah. they've got very extensive notes, and you know, and additional essays uh, as well. And so, um, you know, I was looking at the um, uh, uh, NIV. Uh, the new Zondervan NIV Study Bible that came out last year, uh, you know, it's got, it's basically 3,000 pages. Um, it's a weapon. Yeah. If you hit you somebody know, with that thing, you'd yeah. cause blunt force trauma to their brain. Yeah. You know, and the, and the ESV Study Bible is about the same size, Reformation Heritage, uh, or Reformation Study Bible, about the same size. So there's a great deal of information in there. Um, but you know the the comments, the actual commentary, tends to be pretty thin. Um, in in so you're not going to get as much information in a study Bible. Let's say you're studying the Book of Joshua, you're not going to get as much information in a study Bible, say the Reformation Study Bible or the ESV Study Bible or the NIV, as you would from just a a, a basic commentary right. on the book. Yep. So understand the limitations to study Bibles, and don't be afraid to think for yourself either, and then check your thoughts with reputable commentators and not just the study Bible, because those all have biases, too. You know, there, they try to avoid that, but, I mean, it's, it's, it's virtually impossible yeah, I mean, to why not have some they, bias. Why else do they call it the Reformation Study Bible, right, except ex- that there's going to be the influence of uh, right. Reformed thought? Yeah, it. but every commentator is the same way. I mean, yeah. it's, you, you know, so keep that in mind as you're considering the things well dr shaw it's been great we're dreadfully out of or or perilously close to chapel so we Uh probably should wrap things up but um but it's a helpful discussion i think and and i think the encouragement is to realize that um throughout the history of the church many men have sacrificed the ultimate sacrifice really to get the bible in our language Mm -hmm. and to and have risked much uh, so that we would have the scriptures. Um, and I've often said, you know, we can go to our bookshelves and count 20 Bibles sitting there, 15 Bibles. You know, that's, I mean, and we forget where, how do we get these? And so read it. Um, read it. Think about it. Do what Joshua says, meditating on God's law day and night. And, um, you know, that's why we have it. It's a lamp. Un- it's, a, it's a light unto our path. Without it, we would be bumbling about lost completely um, in the darkness. So. Use God's word. He's preserved it. He's kept it. He's in His providence has brought it to our language, and um, and but we need to read it. It's you can't stick it under your pillow and expect it to just sort of get in your head. Um, I wish it did work that way. It would be a lot easier, uh, but not profitable. Yeah. Even if we did could do it that way. So, Doctor Shuck, thanks for um, helping clarify some things, even in my own mind, um, uh, on this subject. It's a very important topic, uh, I think, in general for the average Christian. Um, in the world. So uh, thank you for being on. You're welcome. Um, really quick, uh, coming up uh, next week, uh, Dr. Pipel back on his uh, back uh, normal monthly edition of Faith and Practice. Uh, so send your questions in. The form is on the website. 
It's very simple. And um, and then the week after that, um, there will probably be no program. It's at least it's an open date for me. It's graduation, so I don't really have anything working at that point. Well, Lord willing, it's graduation. And then May tw- May twenty seventh, um, Jeff Gleason will be back on the program to talk about the evening of confessional concern and prayer that um, is held every year at the PCA General Assembly. At least it's have it has been held. It ha- it, it's been held um, for the last three or four years, so we try to help them uh, with uh, promotional information about what they're going to do there. So that's what's coming up on the program. If you want to find out more, you can go to the website, confessingourhope.com, and just click on uh, broad, uh, coming up uh, on the program, and um, you'll see the list and details of all the different people. So until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.